My name is Gabe Phillips of We Have Not Met, and I'm married to a beautiful lady called Fiona. We've got two amazing kids, and it's a privilege to be a pastor at this spectacular church. People, we've made it to the best month of the year. I tell you, we made it. Well done, everyone. December's, yeah, it is. Come on. We made it, Impele. We made it, man. We had curveball after curveball, but look at us, we're still standing, and uh, we've also made it to the end of our series, and this is the last, the very last sermon. Not just the last, uh, not just the last sermon, but actually the last time this will be preached. We preached already this morning a couple times. This is the last one, so you guys get the last, but I want to tell you, we serve a God who leaves the best for last, so I need you with me, I need you to amen with me, we're really excited, so come on. Very cool. I want to take you back to the year 1989. Um, it was a year that there was this incredible event, this uh, quite literally earth-shattering event that happened in an Eastern European nation called Armenia. And there was an earthquake that devastated the landscape on, on every level, physically and metaphorically. It, it flattened buildings, it flattened economies, it flattened livelihoods. This earthquake grabbed all the news headlines around that area for the day and, and, just, and scarred the nation for many, many years to come. A nation that really struggled to rebuild out of the, the rubble there, quite literally trying to rebuild their very essence and identity after this earthquake. But amidst all the big grand headlines that, that stole the show for, for, that, for that week or two around the world, there was a personal story, a personal narrative that came to light, that almost emerged from all the, all the, the brick and mortar, from all the rubble, just emerged, that took everyone's attention and grabbed their attention in that moment. It was a story about a father and a son. A father who would, his, his everyday uh, routine would be to take his son to school, walk his son to school, drop him off at school, and then leave his son who was sometimes a little bit fragile in spirit and tell him with these words, I'll be back at this spot to pick you up at the end of the day. And I'll put courage in this boy's heart and you'll leave. But this day was a different day, would not follow the status quo as a, the earthquake raged and this man felt the tremors as soon as he got home after dropping his kid at school. And the first thought in this father was, I've got to get back to my boy. So he sprinted down the, the, the roads. He, he navigated uh, falling uh, uh, deb debris. He, man he avoided cars, left, right, and center, emergency vehicles, people crying and screaming and pain and chaos all around. He navigated all that to get back to the school that was now flattened and left in rubble. And there was chaos. He looked at the scene and the way the school once stood was, was gone. There was not a sound coming from the rubble and, and, and sirens were blaring as emergency vehicles were arriving and, and parents were holding each other and weeping in distress. But this dad, there was tears, but there was resolution in his heart. He needed to get to work. And he traced his steps to where he thought his boy's classroom was going to be, would have been, and he started to dig. One massive rubble, a piece of rock at a time, a, a piece of timber to the right, and he started to dig and dig. And uh, people watched this uh, with, with much interest. And as, the, as he continued to work and dig and dig in the, in, in, the, in the brokenness of the story, tears flowing and the tears starting to mingle with the sweat and he mingled with blood as he was cut on different elements of the rock and the, and the things that he chucked aside. People tried to dissuade him from his task. Police chief, fire chief came and said, listen, it's hopeless. What do you, you, what do you think you're going to achieve? We've got rescue teams ready to go, but we, we're just seeing loss at such a level across the city that this is hopeless trying to pull him off his task, but he was resolute. He was shaking them off and he kept on digging. He dug and he dug. Day turned to night, night turned to day. And sources say that he dug for 38 hours straight. Summoning superhuman strength that only a, probably a father or a mother will be able to summon in that moment of chaos. And as, as he was digging, it got to a moment after 38 hours where he pulled one last loose bit of debris and he pulled it out. A little pocket of air was established. 
And as he peered in, he was able to see there was a little crevice that had emerged and there were 13 pairs of little eyes, terrified, staring back up at him. And as he looked in, he heard a little tremor as a light flooded into that space that had been, been buried for 38 hours straight. A little voice, the voice of his son, Amant, echoed out saying, Dad, is that you? To which he replied to Mr. Tears, boy, it's me, I'm here. And then the boy's terrified voice turned to one of exuberance as he turned to all the friends around him trapped in this little crevice. He said, I told you my dad will come. I told you my dad will come. An incredible story that grabbed a nation's attention, a story that's grabbed many uh, storytellers from that moment's attention and emotions. But I want to tell you today, I really believe it is, it is something significant for you and I to take hold of in our hearts. Because I really believe that maybe there are many people here today as we land this series, as we land this year, that feel like 2021 has buried them. COVID-19 has buried them, buried your business, has buried your finances, has buried your prospects, has buried your dreams, has buried your emotions. And maybe you're here today and you're feeling you're buried, maybe not only under the year that was, but even over your life, buried under decisions you've made, buried under the consequences and the rubble of your depression, of your devastation, your debt, your doubt. Maybe the demands of 2022 are burying you under a weight that you can't even bear and there's a smile but you feel the weight of the world upon your shoulders and you say, I don't know if I've got enough breath in my lungs to even take the next breath. Today I want to tell you from heaven itself, your Father is coming. Your Father is coming. Your Father is coming. And I want to tell you, religion will say it with this emphasis, your Father is coming with a finger in your chest. But I'm telling you, this Heavenly Father is not what the, the religious uh, creeds of this world will say to you. It's not an angry God who's coming with a finger in your chest to get you. It's a Father who's coming to comfort you. A Father who's coming to rescue you. A Father who's coming to save you, to deliver you. So the title of my sermon today is this, Buried Miracles. Buried Miracles. So we want to preach it one more time together. So I want us to encourage each other this final time in the series. So why don't you turn to the person next to you. If you've got no one around you, declare it loud into the social distance atmosphere. Tell them we're digging deep today. Come on. We're digging deep today. We're digging deep today, Bunty. Come on. So we want to do something a little bit different as we land. This text we're going to read is an iconic text. It's a text that is so huge in the landscape of Scripture. It's something that is so, so huge, but it's also quite a long text. So I need you to stand. I want us to stand to our feet, if that's all right. We're going to open the Bibles. And if you, if you, if you can, why don't you take a little bit of a stretch, because this could be a long one. Shake your shoulders, people. This is, uh, you, you, you've come for, this is John chapter 11. We're going to turn to John chapter 11. It's a bit of a lengthy passage it deserves to have its time taken with it. So everybody get ready to read the Word of God. This might take long, everybody. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. That's it. You can sit down. We're done. That's the scripture for the day. Some of you are still trying to find in the Bibles. Jesus wept. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are here with us today. And I thank you, Father, today that we can rest our hope not in a calendar changing from 31 December to 1 January, that our hope does not lie in a holiday, our hope does not lie in an economy, our hope does not lie in a government, our hope does not lie in the, in the, in the medical profession, our hope does not lie in a vaccine, our hope does not lie in 2022, our hope lies in the ever unchanging Word of God. 
And I thank you today as a people, a people of faith, we can anchor our hearts to that word today. And I thank you, Father, the truth of this matter is that you are still a God who turns graves into gardens. I thank you, Father, that you're still a God who turns seas into highways. You're still a God who turns sinners into sons and daughters. And I thank you there is nothing too hard for you. So I thank you today, God, that we are as a people come and we anchor our hearts. We anchor our fragile souls to you and to this fact. Our Father is coming. We believe this with every fiber of our being. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. As if you are wanting to orientate yourself in the series, at the landing space of the series, or you wanted to remind our, our, our hearts what Jesus unfiltered means. We've been trying to strip back the layers. We've been trying to take away the filters of politics, of prejudice, of our, our, our placating biases, our personal ideas of what religion sells us, of what the media sells us, of what our culture sells us. We're trying to unfilter this Jesus and gaze at him, the biblical Jesus, the, rightly and truly. See this Jesus who is the King of kings. See this Jesus who is the Lord of lords. This Jesus who is the centerpiece of all history, the hero of the New Testament, the mystery man of the Old Testament, the glory man of Revelation, the seed of Abraham, the root of David. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, we've been looking at this Jesus, the Jesus who in a hundred years' time, the names Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Cyril Ramaphosa, Vladimir Putin, COVID-19, all of those names will just be a blip on the landscape of history. They'll just be a footnote on Wikipedia, if we're still using it then. It'll just be a, a chapter, a page even, in a school, a dusty old school textbook, those names. But there will still be a name. A name called Jesus, a name that politicians have tried to pull down, a name that stories have tried to diminish, but a name that keeps rising from the, the rubble again and again, a name that stands, a name that has every sickness, every situation, every sin under his feet, the name above all names will not cease. It will not slow down. The gates of hell will not prevail against that name. But also that same Jesus took on our flesh and blood, moved into our neighborhood, stepped into our mess, and He's closer than our hands and feet. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the breath on your lips. He's the man who is acquainted with grief, who knows our sorrows, the one who has nail-scarred hands, and He's the Jesus who weeps with us in our moment of pain. Jesus unfiltered. He's glorious. hundred years' time, He'll still stand, but He's here today, walking in the rubble with you. But I want to tell you today, before we get to the tears, let's rewind and get back to the start of the story. John chapter 11 verse 1 starts quite matter-of-factly. It says this, a man named Lazarus was sick. A headline we are well and truly aware of. We get those headlines every day, updates about who is sick and who is not. It's almost par for the course. It doesn't take us by surprise. And in that day, so it was similar, just a name. A man named Lazarus was sick. But before we just brush that name off. I want to tell you it was a name that had significance for Jesus. Because the author John will tell us that in the very next verse says, this Lazarus was Mary and Martha's brother. And so this was somebody that Jesus loved. So much so in verse 3, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus saying they don't use his name. They don't say Lazarus is sick. They say the one you love is sick. They just throw it out there. They like they play on all the potential emotional manipulation they can, or the whatever they've got in their arsenal. They know if we get this message, Jesus, Jesus is coming to us. 
They, they, they're doing that what they can. You know that text, if you are married, you know that text that doesn't say much, but just has the rightly worded words and that emoticon from your spouse? You know that you have to dig deeper than the words and you just got, it means get here now. Or I, I, this, I don't know anyone, anyone, any married people, no one, no, all right, just me. Chat to Fiona after this. But it's so significant because actually up to this point, Jesus has been healing outcasts. He's been healing lepers, healing bleeding women, lame men, blind eyes, deaf ears, mute mouths, withered hands, old people, young people, rich people, poor people, important people, anonymous people alike. He wades into crowds to call out anonymous people again and again and heal them left, right, and center. But these were his friends. These were his mates, and they thinking, hey, if we get this word to Jesus, I'm oh, sure he's busy, busy schedule, but if he hears Laz, Lazarus, Laz, the one that he loves is sick, he's canceling the whole tour, he's coming to us now, he's coming home to Bethany. You see, because Bethany was a home that he would go to often. It was a place he would go, it was, just would go to relax, to unwind after tragedy, he'll go there and find solace. He loved this home, he loved this people, he loved it, I, I, I believe so much so, that he was so much at home there, that when he would walk into their home with his phone, his phone would just click onto their Wi-Fi. He had the password, people. He knew this home well. Love thy neighbor means give them thy Wi-Fi password. Just, just a thought. I, I want to tell you, I can imagine Jesus walks in and he's got his own profile on their Netflix platform. Jesus goes, Jesus gets there. Oh, do I put my feet up? I'm going to watch the show. I'm going to watch. Mm, ah, let me watch Chosen. That's a cracker. That's a cracker. I love that one. I tell you, nobody made chicken wings like Martha. Ooh. And you know what? Jesus, we told, was, a, was fully man. So if he's fully man, he loved chicken wings. And he, he loved chicken wings. So he knew Martha's house, Martha's going to make good chow. And Lazarus could tell a joke like nobody. Honestly, guys, I'm reading between the lines, but if this was a man he loved, Jesus had a sense of humor. I'm telling you, he loved, he loved, he loved. I know Jesus has got a sense of humor because he made Manchester United supporters. Anyway. Anyway, let's carry on. Stick to the brief. Stick to the brief. But, but he gets there. Lazarus could have told jokes like nobody. You know, Jesus like, Jesus, Jesus, have you heard this one? The, the Englishman, the Irishman, and the Nazarene walked into bar. Jesus like, oh, Lazarus, Laz, like, you're killing me, bud. You're killing me. That's awesome. And Mary, oh, if you needed to know what the hottest new worship songs on Spotify were, you got to Mary. Mary would sh share her playlist with Jesus and say, Jesus, you would love this new Maverick City album. It's epic. He's like, let me see. Oh, I love it, Mary. Jesus loved this home. He made himself at home at this place. So you would, you would forgive Mary and Martha thinking if they get this message, Jesus, he's going to drop everything and come straight away. But something weird is going on. Because as we read scripture, we find that it seems, almost seems, that Jesus is intentionally delayed or actually outright late in responding to their message. This is what scripture says, holding no punches. It says this, because Jesus loved them, he stayed where he was two more days. What the heck is going on there? I don't know about you, but I've read scripture, a lot of it. It's a good thing when the preachers read a lot of scripture. Just a thought there. But I've read a lot of it. And all the way through the Old Testament I'm reading, it says this in the Psalms, that actually when I call, you answer God. That's wonderful. He says, my arm is not too short to save. And it says that I am a very present help in time of need. There's a big picture of God being ready at us. When we call, He's ready to move into our chaos. He's ready. at the, he'll, He's here. Whenever you turn your face to Him, He says, I come to you and I answer. That's the picture I get of God. I get to John 11 and it seems like Jesus says, oh, I love them, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stay here for a couple more days. What is going on here? 
It's a little bit bizarre. And while Jesus is delaying, what's happening back in Bethany, as Lazarus is gasping for breath, death itself is tiptoeing into his room and laying his hands on his friend. So often I think we associate Jesus' apparent inactivity with him not caring. But in this delay, I want to suggest today that there is something deeper going on that we have to dig through the rubble of the story to get to the real life. Let me tell you what I love is Jesus starts to preach in this moment. He hears this message and he starts to preach. Now when, when I start to preach, when Wayne starts to preach, when, when, one, when, when someone here starts to preach, it's going to be a good sermon. But let me tell you, when the word that was there in the beginning starts to give the word, you know that's a good sermon. That's, that one, that's one you got to listen to. That's one you got to take notes to when the word gets preaching. I have a word. He is the word. But Jesus starts to preach and he says this line. He says, this sickness of Lazarus will not end in death. Now what Jesus is doing there is he's, he's not just making a, a statement. He's preaching. He's preaching. He's declaring the word of God. The word of God is declaring the word of God. And the word of God in that moment is being sent towards the tomb of Bethany. It's being sent in the direction of Bethany. The word itself, the word that became flesh, is standing uh, two days away, a journey away, standing there. But he's not moving. He's being delayed. But in this moment, he's sending forth the word to a tomb, to an event that hasn't even happened yet. Stick with me in this moment. I want to tell you and encourage you today that we are a people of God, no matter what our circumstances are saying, no matter what the headlines are saying, no matter the earth-shattering events that are happening around us, we're a people who still believe that we're called to declare the word when we don't have understanding. We still believe that we're people who declare the word when we can't see clearly. We declare the word and we send it forth into future situations. And we're saying, because the word of God never returns void. So we declare it. And I love the scripture. Jesus goes on and says, because this happened for the glory of God. So the son of God will receive glory from this. Uh, I want to tell you today, this might seem strong, but it's, 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 it's helpful to understand that actually God is more committed to His glory than the supposed glory of your personal story. You see, when God comes and rescues you dramatically, sets you free, provides, miraculously steps in, He is doing that ultimately, yes, because He cares for you, because He loves you, but ultimately because it's for His glory. And when he doesn't step in and set you free and deliver you and provide, I want to suggest to you that he's doing it for his glory. So his glory will be revealed in a deeper way, in a greater way. Let me tell you why, and maybe a little bit of a clue if we dig through the rubble. If you keep reading in verse 17, it tells us that Jesus arrives in Bethany four days after Lazarus had died. John the writer is somebody who's, who is not, he is, he's, he's known for symbolism. And when he says four days after Lazarus died, he emphasizes that again in the verse 38 when Martha says, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Why is he saying that? Because there was a Jewish tradition at the time that actually that the soul of a man or a woman who died would only leave a person's body after three days of death. That's when they would stop praying for resurrection and that's when they would start mourning because the soul had left somebody. So when Jesus arrives on the scene four days too late, actually he's perfectly on time to let them know that maybe your resources have stopped. Maybe your abilities have stopped. Maybe you've declared dead what, what looks dead in people's eyes, but I have arrived. This sickness will not end in death. But the story is still bizarre. He arrives, 
But what happens is Jesus doesn't head for the family home that he knows well. He knows that route. He knows the password. He knows that he's probably got a key for the gate. But he doesn't head to the home. The home is full of mourners and wailers and, and people bringing, uh, well-meaning people bringing lots of Woolworths chickens to come and put in the fridge and say, he has some cupcakes we baked and, and, and we don't know what to say, but we're going to hear and some cards are on the mantelpiece and they're crying. And, but the Bible says that Jesus stayed at a distance. He's late. He's distant. Can I tell you, I read this text and I think about Martha. Martha goes, what? He's standing at the gate at a distance? That guy who we called to come, he blue ticked me for two days. <laughs> and now he's arrived. He's not even going to come and give a, say, say anything nice, not even a speech. He missed the funeral here. He's missed. Ma Mary, you stay. Mary, you stay here. I will give that Martha. That's it. Martha's going, he ate my chicken wings and now he thinks I'm going to give him some of the leftovers. Not a chance today. And she gets to Jesus. I can imagine huffing and puffing and says to Jesus, if only you had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. But what's remarkable about the story is that then Jesus starts to have a deep theological discussion with her. Jesus says, Mary, Mary, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she goes, yes, yes, in the last day, yes, because that's the tradition. They knew that there was the, the Jewish faith, believe in the resurrection of the dead at the last day. Yes, I know that. But then Jesus said, no, no, you're missing the point. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. And he asked Mary, Martha, do you believe this? Martha, with tears, with, I can imagine, confusion, trying to make sense of Jesus' behavior, trying to make sense of her own pain and loss of Lazarus, and, trying to, and, and, and it's just chaos and internally. She's feeling buried by people's grief, by her sister, by expectations of hosting this event, and about her own pain. And she's seeing Jesus, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And through the pain and the tears, she says, yes, Lord. I know you are the Messiah. Wow, Martha. Wow, Martha, because... The incredible thing we see about Martha in that situation is she allows her theology to be shaped by the depth of her revelation and not the depth of her situation. Too many Christians are allowing the depth of their pain, the depth of their problem, the depth of the situation that's looming large to determine their view of God. But I want to tell you it's supposed to be the other way. We are people who need to dig deep and find ourselves on the rock that cannot be shaken. We've got to allow the depth of our revelation of Him determine the depth of our response. But you see, we're digging, we're digging deep, people. We're digging deep beyond the layers of the rubble, the superficial, what appears in the text. We're trying to find something of depth here so that we can stand in the day of trouble. Because I'm telling you, the day of trouble is coming. If it's not knocking at your door already, it is coming. Jesus promised us that. Here's a good promise for you for this Christmas. In this world, you will have trouble. Put that in a greeting card. Jesus. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There's two promises there that trouble will come, but actually we have to have a revelation not of the trouble, but of the one who overcomes the trouble. And yet Jesus still appears to be distant. It's verse 30. It says, Martha goes back to tell Mary that the teacher's at the, the gate waiting. It says, Jesus stayed outside the village at the place Martha, Martha had met him. It's just perplexing for me, if I'm honest, if I'm just being vulnerable. John, all the way through the book of John up that we've been navigating, we find Jesus, a man who is on a mission, and yet he seems very easily distracted to take detours. 
He goes out of his way to go all the way to a place called Samaria to meet a Samaritan woman, a woman alone, just one person. And when, when he should be having preaching tours of thousands, he goes to find one person. The disciples are like, what is he doing? And he goes and preaches to that one person. And then in John chapter five, everyone's heading to the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles, but he goes out of his way to go to the pool of Bethesda to go to a place where priests and rabbis wouldn't be found. And he goes into their mess to find one man who's not even named, a lame man, but he'll go spend time with that guy. He goes out of his way in John chapter eight. He's preaching a sermon, but and then a woman is dragged in to disrupt what would have been an epic podcast, an amazing YouTube video. He's preaching a phenomenal sermon. A woman comes in and Jesus allows the distraction to engage with a woman who's not named, who we don't hear about again. He deals with her and sets her free. It seems like Jesus is always making detours, always moving close to people on the fringes, moving close to people in need. And this moment, he's appearing distant to those who, are, who love him. Perplexing for me. But again, I want to tell you, there's something deeper going on here. I, I say it often. Maybe this is my own monologue. Don't say it out often, but there are moments where such chaos and, 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 and questions rain down, and it feels like, sometimes I say, God, it just feels like, I know to be different, but it feels like, how can a God who loves me feel so distant? I pray prayers, and it feels like doof, the ceiling. I'm doing it in faith, but I must be honest, God, I'm, I love you, but where are you? But again, there's something deeper going on here. You see, the Bible tells us that when Mary came out to him, he said when he saw her weeping, they had this discussion, a brief discussion, and, 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 and he said to Jesus, come and see where you've laid him. To which Jesus responds, take me to that place. Oh, those words, take me to that place, have such significance for me because this last week on Monday, we received a phone call in the morning of, uh, of somebody in our, in our, in our church who, who, who lost their life in the most tragic of scenarios earth-shattering scenarios that have left rubble, deep rubble for a woman who married him just a year prior. Today is their wedding anniversary. Chaos, questions, pain. And in the evening, another father of somebody else in our community lost their life in a similar situation. And, and then there was more phone calls of chaos in one day. And, I, and I'm sitting there going, I, I'm fearing the phone ringing, saying, what is next? And I don't know what to say. I don't know how I identify. I don't know what I'm going to bring to these people. And I'm saying, Jesus, what am I going to do in these situations? Why, Jesus, why didn't you speak to me 10 minutes before these events happened so I could have maybe changed them? Jesus, why didn't you let me stop that thing happening? Jesus, why can't you empower me so I know what you say in this situation? Hitting the ceiling, and all I hear from Jesus is this, take me to that place. Take me to that place. All I got with had was to take Jesus, go to that place. And I want to tell you today, I believe there's that invitation. Jesus says to you and I, take me to that place of deepest pain. Take me to that place of deepest rejection. Take me to that place where there's the deepest wound, the deepest injustice, the deepest betrayal, the deepest failure, the deepest disappointment, the deepest tears, the memories you have buried, the pain you have buried, the emotions you've buried, and you say, I just don't want to even go there. Jesus says, take me to that place. And then what is so significant happens, what we read earlier, verse 35, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. But what I want to suggest to you is the deepest verse in the Bible that underneath those two words is something of such depth that we need to understand. If you're up for memorizing scripture, here's a good one for you. Jesus wept. 
short, but it's powerful because I want to tell you why. God who was in the beginning, a God who established the foundations of the earth and stretched the heavens out like a tent, a God who called the constellations into being and named them one by one, the God who said to the seas, this far and no further, and they obeyed, the God who, who parted the Red Seas, the God who closed the mouths of lions, the God who speaks and demons obey, the God who speaks and tempers cease, that God we find in this moment weeping, Weeping, bitter tears, deep tears. And today I wanna to remind you, maybe for one person, Jesus isn't too busy not to cry with you. He wants to cry with you. This is the Jesus I wanna remind you. He's the one who weeps with those who weeps. He rejoices with those who rejoice. And you are not crying alone. Maybe there's one person sitting up in the balcony, one person that's in the rows here and there's the mask physically and metaphorically, but you've been a single mom crying tears of desperation. God, how am I gonna pay for X, Y, Z? God, how am I gonna make a plan? Maybe you've been crying tears. Your spouse doesn't even know, crying tears of your failed business. And you're going, I don't even know how I'm gonna tell her. Maybe you are crying over a lost one that you've lost, somebody you lost even recently or even maybe 10 years ago, but that buried pain keeps knocking at the door of your heart and you cannot suppress it any longer. And you've been crying tears, you've wet your pillow with tears night after night. I want to tell you, we have a high priest who knows your deepest fears. A high priest who knows your deepest frustrations, your deepest failures. And what's so profound in the story, Martha and Mary asked Jesus the same question. That just when you know that they've been having a discussion behind the scenes. They've prepped for this moment. When Jesus comes, we'll ask him this. Martha goes and says, Jesus, if only you had been here, Lazarus would be alive. Mary comes a little bit later and says, Jesus, if only you'd been here, Lazarus was alive. To Martha, Jesus gives theology. To Mary, he just gives tears. It's so profound. Because in that, those two brief instances, I believe God is saying to you and I, I am the God who is over the storm. I'm a God who's not shaken by your storm. I'm a God who knows the end from the beginning. I know what, where it started. I know where it finishes. I will be there. I'm the God who holds you in the storm. I'm above it all. I am powerful, more powerful than it. I am over the storm. This is your theology. And yet he's the same God who says, and I'm in the storm with you, weeping you, comforting you, holding you, walking you through it. Not foreign to your pain, not foreign to your questions. You see, when I cry and I do a lot, I cry at situations I can't change. But what we find when Jesus cries, these are not helpless tears. These are comforting tears. They're empathetic tears, but these were also angry tears. The text says in verse 38, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. Still angry? What do you mean? Well, actually, the original language says that, that he, was, he was deep, had deep sorrow within him. And that's where the English language fails. The original Greek of that text will tell us that when Jesus wept, it says he was quaking with rage. Crying, empathetic, comforting. And yet there was steel in his eyes, resolution in his eyes. Better translation says that to quake with rage means to roar or snort with anger like a lion or a bull. I don't know what picture you have of Jesus this Christmas. Meek and mild. Wrap him up in soft blankets. Sweet baby Jesus. Let me tell you about the snorting and raging like a bull and a lion, Jesus, who weeps with you in your pain, but eyes the enemy, says, I'm coming after you. 
This is the Jesus that I want to introduce you to today because I want to tell you why was he angry. Well, I want to suggest that he is angry because death had been bullying, bullying his image bearers for way too long. Cain had killed Abel and looked like death had won. Pharaoh had presided over thousands and thousands of Israelite babies being slaughtered and it looked like death had won. The strongest man, Samson, died. The wisest man, Solomon, died. The man after God's own heart, David, died and it looked like death had won. Every prophet who could see the beginning from the end, who could see millennia into the future, had all this ability to narrate and speak truth to the people of God at that time. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all died and it looks like death had won. And Jesus, even in his own life, he had been stalked from his birth in Bethlehem with Herod trying to snatch that life from him. He was stalked by death from every, from every vantage point to every city. Death had been stalking him and it seems to have stalked him all the way to this tomb of his friend. And again, it looked like death had won. But let's dig a little bit deeper, people. Death hadn't won. And that's why there were tears, but there were tears of anger because this man knew that death was almost finally ready to meet its match. You see, this is so huge because Jesus says this. He says, roll the stone away. And this is where Martha says, we can't do that. The body has been dead for four days. It's stinking. The King James Version says it best. It stinketh. It stinketh. That's what Martha said. But I love Jesus. Jesus, when he says, roll away the stone, he's saying, take me to that place where it stinks. Take me to that place that is shameful, that is embarrassing, that nobody else knows about, that if it was revealed to people today, it would stinketh. Yeah. Jesus says, take me to that place. Yeah. I want to tell you, sir, man, religion can't get anywhere near that place. And if it does, it's got no solution. It just buries you deeper. But Jesus wants in on that place, the place where you gave up, where you gave in, where you said it is what it is. Jesus says, roll away the stone. But here's the kicker in the story. That is one thing that Jesus won't do for you and I. He says, roll away the stone. You and I have to reveal the place that stinks, reveal the place that hurts. He says, I want in on that place, but you have to invite me in. This is so huge. And that word stone, when he says, roll away the stone, that word stone is used in the, in the original language again in, in the book of Exodus when Moses comes down with the two tablets of the law, the stone tablets, the law that would condemn the people of God to their fate and bury them under the weight, a, a load they could not carry, the stone tablets. It's again the word that appears in the book of Ezekiel when he says, you've got a heart of stone. It's symbolic of the law that condemns man and when Jesus says, roll away the stone, he is saying, the law can never declare buried the things that grace declares resurrected. The law declares buried, but grace said, no, 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 no. I'm not finished yet. Let's keep digging. And in this moment, when we come into land, Jesus shouts. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't imply. He doesn't ask. Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And in that moment, the word that was sent forth, this sickness will not end in death, that had been weighing, laying in wait in that tomb, laying in wait. In that moment, the Logos, where that was declared, the Logos has gone forth and Jesus says, Logos, meet the rhema. The word that was spoken is now gonna come to life. The word that was declared is gonna reveal itself to be fully resurrected. And this is so magnificent for you and I because behind that stone, as Jesus declared those words, the aorta started to warm up in Lazarus, 
The left ventricle started to pump. The right ventricle started to pump. The skin that was decomposing was declared, no, 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 you're going back the other way and started to reattach ligament to ligament. The fingers started to shake. Breath started to enter the nostril. The lips that were blue started to have color come back to him. It started to take a breath because the Bible says on the instructions of God, of Jesus himself, Lazarus come out. The dead man came out. The dead man came out. And I love the fact that Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Because I want to suggest, if Jesus just said, come out, every dead person with an earshot would have come out of their graves. <laughs> Welcome to the walking dead. <laughs> because death cannot subdue the purposes of God. Death cannot hold back the purposes of God. The Word of God is not throated, it's not held back, it's not stopped. It will always achieve what it's sent forth to do. But when he says, Lazarus, Jesus is basically into that tomb saying, I am a personal God that knows you, Lazarus. I know the depth of where you've been. I know the depth of your heartache. I know the depth of your sorrow. And I weep with you. Lazarus, I am personal. And when he says, come out, he says, Lazarus, I'm also powerful. That actually I know what I have for you. I know that what has defined you will not be your final story. I know that actually what I've spoken will come to pass. I have authority over life and death and death will and must and now shall obey me. I am a personal and powerful God. You see, I don't care today how long you've been an addict. I don't care. I don't care how long you've been depressed, defeated, buried, how long you've nursed and rehearsed those, those rocks, those rubble, and just you try to make sense of your life and try to come up for air, but you can't, and you try to keep a grim face. You've tried religion. You've tried promises. You've tried X, Y, Z, and you still feel under the weight of sin and shame, the weight of the devastation. I don't care how long you've sat in that state for. Maybe it's been symbolically four days. Too late, too distant, too powerless. I tell you today, here comes the Word of God. Maybe there's no evidence in your life for life. There's no evidence in your marriage for life. Maybe there's no evidence in your finances for life. No evidence in your emotions for life. No evidence in your heart for loving God, to obey God. He says, no evidence. Here comes the Word. I'm ready to prophesy the life of God into you if you're ready to receive it. I stayed up late last night praying this one prayer again and again and again. And this is the Word of God to you and I. Lazarus, come out. Dead marriage, come out. Dead spirituality, come out. Addictions done. Failure done. Depression done. Come out. Come out. Come out. I know you and I'm calling you. And there's something deeper going on in this whole story. Why is this story so powerful? Is this actually a dress rehearsal, a foreshadowing of the greatest resurrection that was yet to come? You see, at the end of the story, Jesus had riled up the religious elite so much up to this point. But it was at this point, at the back of this resurrection, this miracle, that the religious elite started planning to kill Jesus. It would, this was the kindling for Calvary. This moment was the setup for the greatest, what would look like the greatest burial. But let me tell you, in this story, Jesus arrived at this tomb as an alive man, but figuratively, at the hands of the religious elite, left a dead man walking. But the next tomb that Jesus will arrive at He'll arrive as a dead man, but leave as an alive man. And in his wake will be sons and daughters raised to life. Let me tell you, on the cross, God appeared late. On the cross, he appeared distant. On the cross, God appeared powerless. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
If He truly was the Son of God, save yourself. God appeared late. God appeared distant. God appeared powerless. But we know what happened three days later. Let me tell you, at the very center of our faith, as we land this series, the center of our faith is not morals. It's not religious teachings. It's not to-do lists. I will tell you, at the center of our faith is resurrection life. Resurrection life. I tell you everything, that the chief distant difference that sets our hope apart from every other religion on the face of the planet that masquerades itself as a false savior. The chief distance is I can show you every religion's tomb and it is full, but I'll show you Jesus' tomb. It is empty because death could not hold him. Death did not have the final say. He rose to power and life forevermore. Why don't we stand to our feet this morning? As we bring this to close, I wanna pray Praise of faith into our beings. Praise of faith into our hearts because today, maybe your headline, the earth shattering headline is it's too late. I'm too late. Maybe it's I'm too distant. Maybe it's I'm too powerless. Maybe nobody even knows that's going on in your heart. But today I want to tell you the word of God wants to come into your story right now. Maybe you've been buried in debt, buried in depression, buried in depravity, buried and left for dead. Maybe you're saying today, I'm buried too deep, Gabe. I want to declare a prophetic word over you. You are a buried miracle awaiting resurrection life. And it's coming. It's coming. I want to tell you, I want to end how I began. My father's coming. I told you my father will come. I told you my father come. I tell you today, if you allow the word of God to penetrate your heart and your marriage and you bring your dead marriage before to Jesus, your dead emotions to Jesus, you say, Jesus, I'm coming, take me to that place, Jesus says. Take me to that place that stinketh. If you bring your, your dead uh, sexuality to Jesus, I'm telling you, we will stand in moments as pockets of air start to open up and we'll say, I told you my father would come. I told you my father would come. I told you my father would come because he is never late. He is always on time. He is never distant. He is close to the wind and brokenhearted and he's never powerless he weeps with you and he knows you but he says I stand tall over your situation if you need the resurrection power of Jesus you need your theology to be shaped not by the depth of your situation but the depth of a revelation of the victorious king why don't you lift your hands with me this evening